0: You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. It's great to have you with us this morning and how exciting is that about all the dads and kids at the camp, 26, 27 of them all there is just uh, fantastic. So we are thinking of our families this morning. Uh, speaking of families, I am in... I'm in nursery rhyme mode, I'm in the nursery rhyme stage of life again now, which is really interesting as a pastor because my wife Kristen has given me strict instructions that I'm I'm not to preach to my little Zach through the nursery rhyme. I'm not allowed to give him any of the gospel according to's when I'm reading these particular nursery rhymes, which is just as well because I can do that to you this morning particularly, remove the classic, let's all join in together, that Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now, isn't that the first half of the gospel? Surely, surely surely we see that when we we hear Humpty Dumpty. Of course we do. That's the first half of the gospel. And here's the thing. It's because uh, to be a Christian, to be a Christian is to be, Daring enough to admit that at at a broad level and an individual level, we've all fallen off a wall. Not, Not a physical wall. I mean, there is a brokenness in all of us. There is a fragmentation in all of us. There are fragmented thoughts. There are fragmented relationships. There are fragmented desires. There are fragmented emotions in all of us. And look, forget all the horses and all the men. At the heart and the core of every major religion in the world, they're asking this question. They're saying, is there, is there a king who can put me back together again? Is there a king that can put the human race back together again? And as we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 to 28, there's a word here that's used five times. Uh, it's, it's a word that means to unite, to connect, to defrag or defragment for any of the IT gurus here. And that word, the Greeks call it synokomai. We simply call it in English communion. See, because communion means to be put back together again. That's what the Greek word meant. Now, the question we're asking this morning is why do Christians take communion? Why do we have this funny-looking tradition down here each and every week in the church, particularly in Churches of Christ, because this is... You're not, you're not a Churches of Christ church, right, unless you're eating wafer and drinking grape juice every week. Amen? You know, you're, this is a Churches of Christ thing. You take this away, there is no church. And oh, there's good reason for that. There's good biblical reason for that. Although some churches do it sporadically, we do it every week in this place because the founders of our movement came back to the Bible and they wanted to look at the simplicity of, of church and how the early church did church. And they said, what was church? And in, they saw in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they saw the line where it, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And so they saw that church was simply teaching, church was simply community, and church was simply communion. Simple as that. Uh, That's why we celebrate it each and every week. But there's a challenge when we celebrate it each and every week. It goes like this. Uh, My my nan used to live right next to a a major roadway going down to Seaforth. Um, She was in a housing commission place, so all the or the windowsills were not overly soundproof, and she was so close to the road that any time a big truck would come down the road, or there was an accident outside, you would just literally leap out of your seat because you think a semi-trailer is going to come through the lounge room. (laughs) And you would say, what the heck was that? And Nan didn't hear anything. What do you mean, what was that? (laughs) That's because she'd lived there for 30, 40 years plus, and so she'd just gotten used to it. Uh, And frankly, if a a semi-trailer was about to come through the lounge room, she would not hear it coming. She was just used to it. Um, This is like a semi-trailer by your lounge room door, particularly if you're a Christian and part of the family here every week. You see, when you hear words like, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, Until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God, that's a semi-trailer three foot from your door. And I guess my question is, do you hear it this morning? Does it make you jump when you hear that? Uh, Wherever you sit, let's revisit this morning. How does communion connect things together again? Here's the first thing that communion connects. Communion connects your life to his death. Your life to Jesus's death—it it connects you. To that it anchors you. It anchors your present to to a past reality. That's what it does first and foremost. Now we do that all the time. Even non-Christians anchor to a past reality all the time. We call it memorials. Now, April 25th, right, is a memorial. April 25th is an anchor to a past reality for lots of people, whether you're Christian, non-Christian. We do it all the time. Anzac Day. Now, always when we observe the Lord's Supper, when, we're not talking just about the present here and what we're about to eat this morning. We're remembering the last supper of Jesus on the night when, in, in which he would be betrayed by one of his disciples. You're linking his death to your present. Uh, and so they're sharing a meal together. There's uh, bread and there's wine on the table. It's a memorial the Passover. At the Passover, Jesus was enacting a memorial. Uh, a memorial, what do you mean? What's, what's the Passover? Just quickly, you know, at Passover, it was one of these nights that was at the very heart of the Jewish nation. And, and general, generally, it was one of the young kids of the family that would ask the father or the grandfather to tell the story again. Kids like to do that, right? Tell us the story again, granddad. Tell us what happened. Why is this different from the nights of all other nights? And here's what happens. At Passover, the father or the grandfather would recall the story of how Israel was in bondage to the Egyptians, they were in slavery. And Moses had gone up, stuttering Moses had gone up and said, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh didn't listen to him. And and as a result, God said, I'm going to bring forth a little mini judgment on the nation of Egypt. I'm going to give them a taste of, of how I operate as far as fairness and equity is concerned. And so he brings that forth and he says, in order to make sure that you're spared as Israelites... What you need to do is you need to go and kill a little lamb, a little fluffy lamb and, and, and cook it up and have a nice meal and then you'll take the blood of that lamb and you'll paste it over your doorways. And so when the angel of death comes in that night, he will pass over your family and you will be saved. And so as a result, because they took shelter under the blood of the lamb, we hear that phrase all the time in church circles, Because the lamb died instead of anyone else inside the home, the Israelites were saved. They were liberated. And so Moses says in Exodus 12 that you need to keep remembering that this, this Passover meal now is to go and have a lamb meal and to set up a memorial. Anchor your present into a past reality. And and so Passover brings the power of death into their lives. Roast lamb, herbs sitting on the table. They remembered that the lamb had died. Now, some of you are saying, little lamby. And where's, where's the power in that for the modern-day person? And where's the power in a little lamb dying? They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn at the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them. And what just happened then? Gratitude, <coughs> understanding. You just brought the power of someone else's death into your present reality. And it's hopefully for some of you, if you understand the significance of that day to us, it's affected you emotionally. It's affecting you emotionally to remember. The Passover meal to the Jews was what Anzac Day is to you and I as Australians. It, is, it was so ingrained into their psyche. It's so ingrained into our psyche that it moves them and the story moves us. Why? And it's because it's not just, they're just not any stories. They're salvation stories. Anzac Day is effectively a Passover story. A Passover story, a story where someone else copped a bullet for yours and my freedom today. A story where someone's death was the cost of your freedom this morning. That's exactly what was happening at the Passover. That's what the Jewish Passover was, a substitutionary love. And what do you mean with substitutionary love? A swapping in love, a costly love. Here's the thing. Almost all the commentators, when they go back to the passage of Jesus uh, sharing communion with his disciples, they almost all say one of the really weird things was there was no lamb on the table. Now, this is a bit weird because the lamb was a central part of the whole remembering. Why was there no lamb on the table? The reason there was no lamb on the table is because the lamb was sitting at the table. And this is powerful stuff because Jesus steps into that cenotaph and he says, Look at this soldier here. Look at the way you're remembering. And he stands in front of that and he says, I am gonna do that for all time. He's he's reimagining. the the story behind such a powerful narrative in their lives he's saying I will step in he says I will be the main course I'll take the ultimate bullet for you boys and the ones that will believe in you through my message my death will be their freedom and see there's no power in love unless it costs you something you've got to know that if people have been in love before there's no power in love unless it costs you something Love is always messy, right? Love is always costing you someone. People always come with their junk. Let's be real. You can't move into any relationship unless it's going to cost you someone. You know, it's something. If you move out into the world, there, if you go and find the perfect person, there's probably about three of them in Sydney. So um, get out of here now. Go start searching for them. But if if you're anything like me, you realise that we're imperfect. There's junk and it costs to love people. Love is messy and it costs one side everything to love. And so when people come to me practically and say, you know, I can't believe in a God of wrath and of judgment and of death and to do all these sorts of things, my, my response to them then is, well, okay, if, if you believe only in a God of, of love and none of this sort of stuff matters, what, what did it cost your God to love you? Because here... We see, as we connect to this past event in communion, that we have a God that says, I will be the meal. I will be the main course. And as a result, when we remember that love, there is power, there is joy, there is gratitude for you awaiting this morning. It connects your life to his death. But here's the other thing that communion does. Communion, Communion connects your soul to God. Um... When we talk about connecting your soul, we mean connecting your identity, your personality, who you are, uh, everything about you, your inner spirit to God. Uh, Verse 23 of the passage in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. That's Paul talking about communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this. And whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Now, how this connects your soul to God is that one thing that is very clear here, when he talks about bread and he talks about the cup and my body and my blood, what he's saying here, Jesus is saying, is is he's saying, God is saying, I'm accessible to you. I'm real. I'm tangible to you. Now, this is where we get into a whole heap of debate. Just quickly as a side note, because we're saying, well, is that literally or figuratively? And that's where you get the big divisions between the Protestant and the Catholic Church. In summary, the Catholics believe that when you take communion, it's literally literally the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We Protestants say on the other side that it's symbolically the body of Christ, and both of those statements have their own challenges because there were times in which Jesus is alluding to, uh, to eating of his body and to uh, drinking of his blood in John 6 and he, he, he was still alive so he must have been talking symbolically then uh, but at the same time if you just treat this symbolically and you don't treat it with the reverence that the Catholics do then you're at risk of not having the power of that connection coming into your life. Now, moving along, what we're saying here is that the Lord's Supper communion is not just about believing in general. But it's understanding that when you come to the table, there is a deep and a real connection with me, says Jesus. It's it's a real union communion. Now, why do we need to do that? Um, Hakuna matata. That's why we need it. Uh, that was Simba's problem in The Lion King. You know, Simba in The Lion King, had, he had run from the Pride Lands as the future king. He'd run from the Pride Lands on the basis of a lie from Uncle Scar. And so he'd met, met his two little friends, Timon and Pumbaa, and he'd been living a Hakuna Matata life. No worries. No worries is what Hakuna Matata meant. And he was living life in an oasis and he was living like a monkey running around the jungle. He didn't look like a lion anymore. Until Nala, his young friend, finally discovers that he's in his life and she sees a future king living a life of ignorance and bliss of self-gratification in the jungle while the Pride Lands are dying. And she says, you've got to come back to Pride Rock. You've got to get things right again. And, and Simba just doesn't seem to get it until he looks uh, into the water one night, and he has an encounter with the ghost of his father, Mufasa. And Mufasa from the clouds says to him, Simba, you have forgotten who you are because you have forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than you have become. You must take your place back in the circle. Of life. <laughs> uh, to understand what Jesus is promising in communion, you, you have to look at this word, remember. Why? Because you, what are you doing here when you take communion? You're not just eating, you're not just drinking. Jesus says, eat, drink, in what? In remembrance of me. And by the way, when we think of the word remember, it's troubling because the English word is not quite what it truly means. When we think remember, we think recall, don't we? But to remember means not just to, to recall, it means to fuse, to sow, to graft. And so what it really means is that you take something that is actually not part of your being and you make it part of your being again. And I guess the question is, well, why do you need to graft? What do you need to graft? We need to graft because we live in a hakuna matata world. That, Friends, the great challenge of any Christian is that we are constantly forgetting who we are. We're forgetting our place and our responsibility in the kingdom. And so when Jesus when we meet him, when we connect our soul to God the same way that Simba did when he looked up into those clouds, when we do that in communion, the ultimate father, the ultimate father says, look inside yourself, you are more than what you have become. The anxiety, the guilt, the stress, the brokenness, the selfishness, you are more than that, says the ultimate father. Remember, you have forgotten Who you are because you have forgotten me, says the Father. That's how communion connects your soul to God. The third thing communion does is communion connects the individual to community. I guess one of the questions is, why would I have chosen 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to talk about communion when there's lots of examples in the Gospels of the Last Supper? We could have talked about it then. The reason I liked it is because the Corinthian church is just such a heck of a mess. It's a messy church. There was all sorts of crazy stuff going down. Uh, uh, People were coming to communion and and some people uh, were were so wealthy and so rich in the church that they were taking of communion and and they were getting themselves drunk on the wine before they even got through the end of the service. Some of them had such disdain for the life of the church that they were eating and gobbling up all the communion because they were hungry and then they would just go and leave church. And then the people who were poor were being left behind. They weren't getting any food in the communion. When it was a real thing, so it was a messy, messy place, a messy situation. That's why Paul says, "You know, I've got nothing good to say to you here in this matter." <laughs> That's when you know you're in trouble. It's like when your parents say, "Come here," and Paul's doing that to the Corinthian church. Now, uh, let's come back to the Passover quickly. Uh, why is Paul talking about Passover again and the communion? Passover was a meal for the family. It was a family meal. Uh, In in fact, uh, some people uh, think this is really strange, but Passover was a meal where you came back to your family. It's the modern-day equivalent of Thanksgiving. You know what America's like. Airports go into lockdown during Thanksgiving because kids from colleges all around the world and friends that are working in various cities around the States, they come in and they're all coming back to their family. This is Thanksgiving. Now, can you see the picture here? Because there's something different about this. Why is Jesus pulling together all of his disciples to sit down and he's pulling them out of their families and he's saying, let's have a family meal. I mean, they should be at home. There are, there are, there are 12 mums and dads there at the time who don't have their kids at the table with them. Uh, there was, there was a, a Jewish table set with a little place card with some nice glitter around it that said Peter and there was a blank seat behind the place card. Because the boys weren't at home with their families. Now, what's Jesus getting at here? The message is pretty strong. Jesus is pulling the boys from their family because he's making a new family. And here's the significance of new family. You You know what it's like when you're raised with your brothers and sisters. You've all got differences. You're all different. You're all great on each other's nerves. But you've been through everything through them. You're raised with them. Uh, You've had so many common experiences with them. There's a bond there, right? And so Jesus is saying, if you believe in my death, that is actually so life transforming that everyone who believes in my death becomes a brother and sister. He's saying there's a basis for unity here in the church that should be so strong. It's as if you've been raised together. And so what it means is it doesn't matter what your race is. And it doesn't matter what your class is. and It doesn't matter what your background is. And it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It's stronger than anything else, this linkage. And that's the reason why when talking about the meaning of Jesus' death and communion, a writer says, What binds us together? Is not common education or common race or common income levels or common politics or common nationality or common accents or common jobs or anything of that sort. Christians come together because they have been loved by Jesus Christ. They're a band of natural enemies who now love one another for the sake of the cross. Remember in Christ, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no Gentile, there's no slave, there's no free. Everyone is all in all and, and, and through all in Christ. And so now we get a sense of why... Paul is starting to throw a tanty. Verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. This is a shemozle. He says, some of you go ahead with your own private supp- suppers and as a result, someone remains hungry, the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God so much that you humiliate those who have nothing, the poor? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not. Now, what is he so upset about? He's so upset because the heart of the gospel is, well, the second half of the gospel, not the Humpty Dumpty half. The second half of the gospel is you're saved by Jesus' work. You're saved by his bullet. You're saved by him being the main course. And so, therefore, it doesn't matter how hard you work or how good you are or how pristine you are or how holy you think you are. We are are all sinners saved by God's grace. We have all fallen. We've all had a mini fall off the wall. And so, therefore, it's all on the basis of his work and of his goodness. And guess what? That levels people. It levels people. And Paul says, he's saying to them, and in some ways he looks over the top of the Bible and he says to us this morning, it is totally incongruous with the message of Jesus for you to come to the communion table this morning if you're bitter or you're angry or you're unresolved or you're unreconciled to your brother or sister. On the basis of what he's done. Now, some of us could be in that place this morning. The church is not a perfect place. And the question is, oh, if I'm bitter and angry, can I take communion? Yes, of course you can. But the communion is the trigger point. Communion is that constant discipline in your life that triggers you to say, you know what, we are so lucky that we don't worship a God who holds grudges. Because if, if the God of the universe holds a grudge, we're toast. We're gone. <laughs> we're... <laughs> He's not holding grudges against us. So who are we to hold grudges against others? And so communion brings the individual in to the new family. And finally, communion connects your story to the future. It not only connects you to the past, it not only connects you to God, it not only connects you to new family, it connects your story to the future. How? Uh, Verse 26 Paul reciting Jesus says for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes proclaim the Lord's death until he comes what does that mean I don't know about your families but did you did you ever have a kid's table whenever you had Christmas or any special family event I hated the kid's table I spent a lifetime as a young boy wondering when I could graduate from the kids' table because it was normally one of those fold-out type things that my grandmother would have with a nice little bit of vinyl velour padded top that was all so wobbly and all the parents are getting all the silverware and the nice napkin rings and all the stuff that grandma's polished and, 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 yeah, we get some plastic cups and a wobbly table. Anyone else been there? Amen. I hate the kids' table. You want to know what heaven is? Have a look at Revelation. That's always a great start if you want to have a look at what the Bible says about heaven in verse 19. And John writes, Then the angel says to me, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and and he will be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for... The old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. You know what he's doing? He's starting to put Humpty back together. And here's what I love about heaven. Heaven's being able to sit up at the grown-ups table. Because you and I know the grown-ups table, the table, the table is the place you always want to long to be. The table is the place, and unlike the human grown-ups table, where you don't have to wait to speak until you were spoken to as a child of the, this father. Where you can come with the same audacity as every little kid and you can sit at the big table and you can interject and you can butt in and, Daddy, what does this mean? And, Daddy, what does that mean? And you can speak to him face to face you can talk to God and here's how bits of cracker and grape juice profoundly affects the christian each and every week it reminds us all when we connect our story to the future it reminds us all this morning that what we are about to experience in a few minutes it's just the kids table it's wobbly the silverware's not quite out yet The good food's not quite out yet. The great cups are not quite out yet. You don't get to sit with dad just yet. But Jesus says, kids, I'm doing everything I can to prepare that place for you. I want you to sit here in due time. (laughs) I want you to sit here in your time. It's a reminder for you this morning that every bit of goodness and every bit of laughter and every bit of joy and every bit of beauty and every single bit of wonder that you have experienced this week, you know what that was? Hors d'oeuvres. Nibbles, cocktail nibbles on what you will one day experience at the feast that will satisfy you for eternity. And so it means this morning... No matter how messed up or screwed up or junked up your life is, these good things, they are hors d'oeuvres of your future bliss. Christians take communion to connect their story to the future, to the big table. We all fall. We're all fragmented in some way. You might be fragmented this morning. The good news, the gospel, the second half of the nursery rhyme is that there is a king who can put the humpties of this world back together again. He is putting the humpties of this world back together again. I make all things new, he says. And so what it means, if you are broken, if you are fragmented, if you are not grafted into that story, you can, by faith in Jesus Christ this morning, receive him into your life. Remember who you are. You are more than what you have become this morning. Receive Jesus Christ. Take your place in the circle of life. And friends, if you have received that identity, if you're a Christian, if you're part of the messed up family that realistically is the church, come to the padded, lino, rickety thing. Come to the small table. Eat, drink, remember, connect yourself to your future. Let's pray.